want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. I publish podcast episodes around investing content both through YouTube and through your personal podcasting platform. You can follow me and subscribe on YouTube. If so, like and subscribe to the show. And also, if you're listening on the podcast, consider leaving me a rating and review. Your support helps me to grow the podcast audience over time. You can also follow me on Twitter at Trey Henniger. So in today's episode, I want to discuss investment returns and how you earn excess returns in the stock market. The topic for today's show really centers around this question. What is the source of your investment return? And I think this is a critical question for investors to answer for themselves. Your individual investment strategy, which we've been discussing different types of strategies recently, is what drives your investment return. But how exactly does that strategy provide the return? And I think this is important for you to understand. It's important to only invest in things you understand, so you need to understand the full process. Where does your return come from? Why is it that you can make an investment and you can get back 5%, 10%, or 15% return per year? Those returns are higher than a savings account. So why is it that you're earning more money in the stock market than you earn in the savings account? Why shouldn't you earn the same? Why shouldn't the savings account earn more money than the stock market? What is it that's driving that return to be higher? Why is it that the actions you're taking are deserving of that higher return? And that's really this question. And I think if you haven't considered it, I want to challenge you today to consider this question because it can drive a lot of your decision making and it might help you identify weaknesses in your current investing process. This is particularly important when you're thinking about making investments or holding investments or selling investments during a market downturn. When the market is in turmoil, it's easy to question yourself. It's easy to question, am I making the right decisions? Am I doing the right thing? Are my investments too risky? Should I stick with my strategy or change? And it's important, therefore, that you understand that strategy. The reason for this is clear. Investments, as opposed to speculations or gambling, is a method of seeking returns while protecting your principal. Therefore, it's critical to understand the source of those investment returns. You are not entitled to investment returns. You're certainly not entitled to high investment returns. You don't have a God-given right to earn an excess return on your investments. So with that understanding in place, how is it that you, listening to this podcast right now, earn returns? What is the source of your returns? 
not my returns. What's not the, it's not, I'm going to talk about the source of my returns. What is the source for your returns? Why is it that you, listening to this podcast, are able to earn a high return on your investments? What is it about your strategy? What is it about those investments that is leading to that return? This is going to vary by the type of investor you are. So it is important for you to think about it. You need to understand and have a clearly defined strategy. You need to clearly understand what's driving that strategy. So I next want to go over a few examples. But as I talk through these examples, they may or may not fit your strategy. This Your strategy might not be any of the examples that I cover today. Now, my goal is to cover a lot of examples, covering different types of strategies, so you can both, so one, I'll hit most of the audience, but two, it will help you to understand how your strategy might differ from others, and maybe you're not actually operating the strategy that best fits your personality and best fits your psychological profile. (laughs) So, our first example for today is we're going to discuss net-net investors. I've talked about net-nets quite a lot in the podcast recently. It's because in the current marketplace, net-nets are starting to become available. Quick reminder, if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, a net-net investment is a, is a stock or company trading at less than its net current assets. It means if you add up all the current assets, you subtract all the liabilities, the price of the stock is less than that value on a per share basis. And I, in, in general, it's less than 0.67 times that value. So that's what net nest investing is. It's very good investing style. But why does it work? Where do the returns come from? It's not like you buy this stock at 0.67 times net current asset value and then bam, you receive a return. Why does this strategy work? What's driving it? Well, here, I believe that net net investors receive their return due to the concept of mean reversion. Mean reversion is the idea that over time, various things come back to the mean. You might have excess um, exuberance over time. It's going up and up and up. People are super excited about something. And then every once, then eventually, it comes back to normal and people are feeling normal about it. And sometimes you have people feel very down about a stock, very upset, very fearful. That can't last forever, and mean reversing suggests that over time it's going to come back to a normal average state. So the idea that net-net investors are using to receive their excess return is they're capitalizing on mean reversion. They're buying companies when ideally they're at the most, other investors consider it most dangerous to do so. They're buying companies at the most hated time, and so that Over time, the amount of hate simply needs to lessen. The amount of fear around that stock simply needs to lessen. And the psychological, you know, focus around that company simply needs to mean revert towards average. So that's what mean reversion is. It's this idea that no matter how good things look, eventually they won't look as good. It might be a year from now, might be five years from now, might be 20 years from now, but at some point in the future, there's going to be a mean reversion back towards average. Mean is another word for average. So you're going to revert back towards the average. 
over time, at some point in time. That point in time is not defined. That point in time is not predictable. But the mean reversion idea is that at some point in the future, things will look at whatever it is, whatever company you look at, there will be, it will be considered more average than it is today. It might not be considered an average company, but it might be considered more average. So if it's considered one of the worst companies in the world today, it's likely to just be considered, it might be considered just a bad company in the future. And that differential can lead to some excess returns. Likewise, you might have companies that are considered the best in the world today. Think the Amazons, the Facebooks, the Apples. Best companies in the world. And maybe in the future, they're considered just a little bit more average. Not an average company, but now they're just a normal, high-quality company. That mean reversion can lead to a drop in stock price, a drop in the price-to-earnings multiple. So that's what we mean by mean reversion, and I believe that mean reversion is the driving force for the excess return of net-net investors. That leads me into my second example, value investors. This is a more general category, a broader category. What value investors try to do is they're trying to buy stocks that are priced at a low price and that are down on their luck. There's something wrong with them or they're just relatively cheap. They're cheaper than the average, which also means that I believe value investors derive a substantial portion of their return from the concept of mean reversion. So net-net investing is basically a subset of value investing, so it makes sense that these two match up together. And so what value investors are trying to do is they're buying cheap companies. They're buying companies that may be down on their luck. Maybe these are companies that need a turnaround. Maybe these are companies that are currently unprofitable but have been profitable in the past. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to buy stocks that are currently hated And then at some point in the future, when they're not hated, they're able to sell them at a better price. That's the basic concept behind most general value investing strategies. You're buying the cheaper thing, and you're trying to sell them not when they're expensive, but when they're average. Because if you buy something cheap, let's say you buy it at a price-to-earnings ratio of 5, and it rises to the average price-to-earnings ratio of 15, then you get the benefit of tripling in price relative to the earnings. Now, that might mean that earnings might drop in that time frame or they might be stable, but basically you get the benefit of that rising price to earnings multiple. That's mean reversion. You're saying, okay, this is a downtrodden stock. It shouldn't be trading at five times earnings, even if it's a hated stock. In the future, it should be at 10 times earnings and the price should double then. Maybe it takes five years to do that, but even if it doubles over five years, you're talking about a greater than 10% return. And that's the sort of style that we're talking about. So that's basically where I think value investors fall. So let's talk about another style of investing. Let's talk about momentum investors. So momentum is another investing factor like value. Value focuses on cheap, um, hated, that sort of thing. Momentum focuses on those things that are currently moving positively or negatively. The idea is if the stock price is moving up and has a long trend of moving up, you get on that momentum and ride the stock as it moves up. If stocks currently have a downward momentum, maybe you sell them if you own them, or if you don't own them, you might consider shorting stocks with the downward momentum, and then you benefit as the stock drops and the momentum continues. 
So how do momentum investors make their money? Where does their excess return come from? There's been studies, and these studies say that momentum works as an investing strategy. Now, I'm not a momentum investor, but I understand that momentum does work, and it's one of the widely accepted factors that works. Value and momentum are the two most widely accepted factors that work when you look at investing style. By investing in momentum stocks, or by using a momentum strategy, sorry, um, you're able to gain an excess return if executed well. Now, to me, it sometimes feels like voodoo, how they predict changes in momentum and that sort of thing with technical analysis. But it is clear that historically momentum has worked. Why does it work? Even if I don't fully understand and I'm not interested in implementing the momentum strategy, it's valuable to me to understand how they're receiving their excess returns. And I think I've figured that out. And I think momentum receives its excess returns through the concept of inertia. Inertia is a physics concept. It's a mental model for you to understand. And it's the idea that the tendency for things in motion to stay in motion. So once something is in motion, it takes a lot of force to stop it from being in motion. Things that are moving don't simply stop on their own. A force is required to stop that movement. And that's what momentum investors are are banking on. Stock prices don't simply stop moving up if there's a lot of momentum around them moving up. If a stock's been going up quickly for a long period of time with a driving force behind it, usually something like rising earnings or rising hype or growing revenues, um, great marketing, a very good product, um, that momentum builds up over time and it continues as a driving force. And usually in order to stop it, you need another force to push against it to stop that momentum. This occurs in stock prices just like it occurs in stocks. You can think about it in a more, uh, I mean, it occurs in stock prices just like it occurs in physics is what I meant to say. Um, think about it if you're driving a car. If you're driving a car down the highway, driving, we're going to assume for a second you're following the speed limits. You're driving like 65 miles an hour in your car. Or even better, you're driving 65 miles an hour in your big pickup truck. Now, that big pickup truck has a lot of momentum behind it, It has a lot of force. You've applied the brakes. It's going very, very, very fast. Now, you've used a force, gasoline, driving the car to get it up to that speed. So now you're going 65 miles an hour. What happens when you remove your foot from the gas pedal and you no longer have the force behind the car? You're no longer adding new force. But when you remove your your foot from the gas pedal, the truck continues to move forward. It continues to have momentum and continues to drive for a long distance. If you don't actually put on the brakes and you simply take off the gas while driving 65 miles an hour, it's going to take a long time before you stop. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of force built up in that momentum. There's a lot of inertia. And that inertia keeps the truck moving much longer than it would if that inertia didn't exist. So it's, it's just showing that the momentum still has power, even though you're not adding new power to it. 
Now, it still stops eventually because there is force being applied to it. You have wind resistance that the truck has to drive through and the wind resistance slows down the car slowly. You have friction on the tires. The tires slowly begin slowing the truck as soon as you let off the gas. But it's slow. Those are small forces that the truck has to fight against. A big force would be something like a brick wall. If you ran that truck straight into a brick wall, hopefully with a test dummy, um, the truck would have to stop immediately, but it's because it's heading has a huge force acting against it, stopping the truck from moving forward. That brick wall is acting as a stopping force. The same is true with investments. When you're thinking about how momentum tends to work, you need some sort of brick wall usually to stop momentum. You need something to start turning the momentum around, some sort of stopping force. And that's what momentum investors are banking on, that their inertia is going to keep them moving forward until they hit some sort of wall. And they're trying to predict when those walls are occurring or when they start appearing. So, don't want to dive too much longer to that um, example, but simply that momentum investors, I believe, make their money from the inertia in stock prices. So this brings me to another type of investing. I'm going to consider it um, both quality investors and growth investors um, tend to receive their returns from the same thing. And this growth investors could mean um, growth companies that are high growth companies, something like an Amazon or a Google, or it could mean dividend growth investors, which are, you know, more of the consumer staples, owning something like Johnson and Johnson or Coca-Cola. Where do these companies receive their return? And for all three of these types, I think the return doesn't come from mean reversion and it doesn't come from inertia. The return comes from, I've kind of struggled to come up with a separate mental model that's not simply fixed in the investment world, but it's really your return comes from the reinvestment rate and the return on incremental invested capital. So this is really another way of saying it's, it's your returns driven by the status quo continuing that the business performance is driving the return. So with net net investors and value investors and momentum investors, you're not necessarily depending upon the business performance um, itself giving you the return. Instead, you're going to get a lot of your return through changes in the price to earnings multiple, changes in the way that other people value your business. But quality investors, growth investors, and Dividend growth investors are really trying to earn their return from the business performance. And here it's, you know, saying, okay, let's say your return on invested capital is 20%. Now, if you're able to reinvest 50% of the earnings that you have each year, that means that you should be able to reinvest 50% times 20% equals 10%. So you're able to grow at a 10% rate every year as long as you can reinvest 50% of your earnings. You can then use the other 50% of your money to pay out dividends to your investors. So your investors are going to receive a return from the 10% in growth. They're also going to receive a return from that 50% paid out in dividends. And so 
what tends to happen is maybe quality and growth investors and dividend growth investors don't see themselves operating the same strategy. And in a lot of ways, they aren't. You're going to see different stocks fit into those portfolios. But they're all depending upon the underlying improving business performance to continue in order to drive their return. And so what they're trying to do is there are different takes on these two qualities, the reinvestment rate and the return on incremental invested capital. Quality investors are trying to find companies with a high return on incremental invested capital. These are companies that are able to have sustainably high returns on capital, so it means that when they do have projects to invest that money, it's going to lead to a high rate of return. But often, these quality companies have a relatively lower reinvestment rate. So you might have a low reinvestment rate compared with a high return on incremental invested capital. What happens then is when you take this low reinvestment rate and a high return on invested incremental invested capital, what you're going to see with the quality investment is that they might pay out high dividends, but they might be stable. They might be able to you know, continuously pay a dividend, and maybe they're only able to reinvest 10% or 20% of their investments, um, of their earnings to help grow the company. But if the return on invested capital is 50%, well, then you can receive a 5% rate of return from or 5% growth by only investing 10% of your earnings, as long as there's a 50% return on that investment. This would be the type of thing that a quality investor might look for. They don't necessarily need a high investment reinvestment rate because they have such a high return on incremental invested capital. But if they have a high reinvestment rate, even better. Meanwhile, growth investors might have still receiving the return from the reinvestment rate and the return on incremental invested capital. But the focus is a very high reinvestment rate. Most growth investments aren't going to pay dividends, which means that they are going to be investing nearly all of their earnings. So let's say it's a 100% reinvestment rate. That means that any growth they're able to receive is going to put all their earnings back in and it's going to mean that they're basically the only limit to their growth rate is their return on incremental invested capital. It also means that as the company grows, that return on invested capital is going to shrink over time because there's a limit on how big a company can grow and still receive high rates of return. So what you're going to see is, let's say they're going to start out investing 100% of their earnings in growth. Maybe they're receiving a 30% rate of return on their investments. That means it's going to grow 30%. Well, five years from now, maybe they only receive a 25% return on their investments. So they're going to grow 25%. Well, in the five years after that, they can only return they only earn a 12% return on their investments. So now they're only going to grow 12%. And this will continue until the company decides to stop growing at such a fast rate and start paying out dividends, which would then allow them to start increasing their return on invested capital again, and it will reach some sort of balance, which is why you tend to see with growth investments that they don't want dividends paid out. The investors want you to reinvest all the money into the company because they see the return on invested capital 
being higher than the return they can receive themselves. So they want you to reinvest 100% of your money into the company to achieve that high growth rate. A classic example of a growth company, which most people probably don't see it as such, is Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway is a key example of what happens in the long term to a growth company. For a long period of time, Berkshire Hathaway was able to achieve high rates of return, or at least high enough rates of return to allow a 100% reinvestment rate of the earnings. So Warren Buffett would take 100% of the earnings from the companies and reinvest it into new companies or the same companies to continue the growth in earnings. He did that for 50 years. And so what's happened is now, even though he's still retaining 100% of his earnings, his invested his rate of return on invested capital has dropped significantly. Now it's probably somewhere between 6 and 11%, which also means that future growth is going to be only between 6 and 11% or lower because he's starting to run out of ways to invest capital at a high rate of return because he has so much money. So now most people would say that Berkshire Hathaway today is no longer growth investment but it's being operated as such because they're reinvesting 100% of their capital. The last category here is a dividend growth investor. So again, a dividend growth investor can have varying reinvestment rates. The key point is, so it tends to be a low to medium reinvestment rate. So you might see something like the dividends are 80% or 60% of the earnings. And so maybe they're reinvesting 20% or 40%. And that's reinvested using a stable incremental invested capital. So it might not be super high, but maybe it's 12% or 15%. But you can only reinvest you know, 20% of the company at that 15% rate of return, which means you're going to get 3% growth. But then you're going to use 80% of your earnings to pay out dividends, and that's going to grow about at 3% over time. And that's the sort of investment you see in a dividend growth company. It's still reliant on reinvestment rate, but the most important aspect is that stable return on invested capital. This allows them to not simply reinvest their money, but to do it at stable rates over long periods of time, which gives the stability to allow the dividend growth investments to perform like dividend growth investors expect. So those are the examples that I wanted to cover today. Um, We talked about net-net investors receiving the returns from mean reversion, value investors from mean reversion, momentum investors from inertia, and then you have quality growth and dividend growth investors, which are all varying ways of talking about and framing the business performance and ongoing future business performance as really the driver. And so I'm going to really highlight that, that we believe that future business performance is the driver for those types of investments. So you really have three options amongst the examples I've talked about today, and there might be others. You're either going to receive your excess returns from mean reversion or from inertia or from future business performance. The question that you need to answer today And what I want you to think about is which of these three different methods do you think is most predictable or most reliable and you'd like to earn your money with that investment style? What style best fits you? Personally, 
I really struggle to base my investments on momentum because I don't trust inertia. I don't trust inertia enough to put large amounts of my net worth into investments based on that strategy. That leaves me two options left. So I now have mean reversion and I have future business performance. Now, I want to talk a little bit about mean reversion. I think mean reversion works, just like I also think inertia works, but I think mean reversion works. What I have been increasingly struggling with recently is why does it work? Now, Benjamin Graham would say, we don't know why mean reversion works. We just know that it does work, and that's all we need to know. And I think that's wise. It's wise to recognize that something works, and you don't necessarily need to know how to adapt your life to that. I think Sir Isaac Newton, no, let's see here. Yes, it was Sir Isaac Newton. He discovered gravity by um, seeing that an apple fell from a tree to the ground. Now, he didn't have to know how gravity worked to observe that gravity existed and that it was a force that always existed and that he should base his life and his you know, science around the fact that gravity existed. He was simply able to observe gravity is out there and it would be smart to recognize such and not to ignore it. I think the same thing can be true with mean reversion, and that was the wisdom that Benjamin Graham said. He said, there is mean reversion in the markets. I don't know why it works. I just know that it works. And so the value investing strategy was developed with the idea that mean reversion works. You could say the same thing with momentum. If you trust that inertia works, I don't necessarily have to fully understand it. But for me, I have a better understanding of mean reversion, and I can relate more to that psychologically than I can inertia. This brings me to future business performance. Future business performance is what I would like to rely on the most. I feel like I have the greatest edge understanding future business performance than I do inertia or mean reversion, or at least I think I know the drivers for what makes businesses successful. The problem is, is I have no reliability in feeling like I can predict the future in general. So we're at a crossroads. Inertia doesn't feel right to me as a way to base my investment strategy on. Mean reversion, I like the idea, but I struggle with understanding what that driver is. And I know it's wise to not worry about that. But it's always a thing in the back of my mind where I'm saying, well, what's really making mean reversion work? What if it stops working? But business performance, I think, is something that can always be depended upon. The problem is, is it's hard to predict the future. It's hard to predict what those numbers will be. There's a big difference between a company that can earn 10% rates of return on its capital and 20% rates of return on its capital. If I predict a company to return 20% on its capital and it only receives 10, my investment's not going to work out like I want it to. So I'm stuck. I think, and what I've seen is over time, I have shifted more and more of my investments away from deep value, highly mean reversion dependent companies and more and more into companies that depend upon the 
ongoing business performance in order to drive my returns. So it's a sum combination of quality investments, growth investments, dividend growth. But I also like mean value investing. Now, I don't have answers for you today. I have questions, but I think these questions are important because any answer I give you is not going to apply to your situation. You can only use the questions that I've challenged you with today in order to make your own process better. I'm still working on it, but I think this is a good enough baseline for today that you can think about it. Which of these styles fits best with you? Do you want to depend on inertia? Do you want to depend on mean aversion? Or do you want to depend on predicting accurately future business performance? So thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope you have found this show valuable. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline, are available at diyinvesting.org slash episode 77. Remember, this is a listener-supported podcast. If you gain value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at diyinvesting.org slash P-A-T-R-O-N. If you're listening on YouTube, please hit the like and subscribe button on this video and feel free to leave a comments below and I will respond as I can. If you're listening to this on a podcasting platform, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or another platform, please consider giving this podcast a rating and review. Your five-star ratings, along with a one-to-two-sentence review, help me to grow the podcast audience. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.